Today's show is brought to you in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. In appreciation of our guests' participation, we have made a contribution to the following organization on their behalf. The PTM Foundation, highlighting the stories of indigenous peoples and building community resilience through music, art, and connectivity. For more information, please visit ptmfoundation.org. Indigenous peoples have been storytellers from the very beginning. And because we have been storytellers from the very beginning, we have also been data experts from the very beginning. I believe that Indigenous data have the power to not only transform and sustain Indigenous communities, but to transform and sustain our entire world. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. This week, we'll be talking with John Gourley and Zach Carruthers from the band Portugal The Man about their Grammy-winning smash hit, Feel It Still. The band have used the song's success to start the PTM Foundation, whose mission is focused on amplifying indigenous voices around the world. Also joining us is sociologist and data scientist Desi Small-Rodriguez. Dr. Small-Rodriguez is a member of the Cheyenne Nation and also a professor in the Sociology and American Indian Studies Department at UCLA. With her Data Warriors Lab, her work is part of a growing movement to dismantle and reformulate how population, economic, and health statistics are gathered on Indian reservations. In addition, Desi is a leading advocate for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Feel It Still, Building a Data Revolution in Indian Country. Hello, Portugal, the man and Desi. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having us. We are here. Hi, great to be here. Zach and John, let me just start by saying it's it's been such a pleasure to watch you guys clean house these past few years. I want to enumerate for our listeners your list of achievements. You won a Grammy. Your music has over a billion streams on Spotify. Barack Obama himself is a fan. And from where I'm standing, few other bands are as deserving of your success because, you know, I've seen firsthand you've been on a nonstop tour and recording schedule since you started i guess about 15 years ago right yeah it's been it's been a long time yeah we played together back in 2008 and i have oh yeah such fond memories of of that tour and so much fun you know and what i can say to listeners who've not been to one of your shows is every night back then playing all ages venues and vfws and stuff from that into the larger venues i've seen and you play in recent years it's the same kind of energy that you're able to transmit and your connection with the audience seems no less intimate it's it's something that's it's so cool for me to to see and i want to congratulate you guys thanks man i appreciate it yeah i think I speak for us and everyone else when no one really saw that coming. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I saw you in uh, a couple of years ago when you came through New York and maybe halfway through the set, Zach, you stepped up to the mic and you said, 
we want a Grammy dude. Yeah, we're, we're just as shocked as everyone else. <laughs> but it was the first time I'd ever experienced the collective use of dude for thousands of people. <laughs> oh, man, got to keep it real. I only really know how to talk to a few people. I should really take some public speaking courses because uh, we're not very good at that. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. You should not change your thing. <laughs> and, you know, and to also to speak to your rise, I, when I was picking up my ticket, I noticed the security guy flip past Ben Stiller's comp ticket. <laughs> so he was he was among the collective dude. Yeah, that that was that was pretty cool. He had he really likes us for some reason. We really like him. I mean, his stuff is amazing and hilarious and he like he wraps up a lot of things with very serious issues and comedy and kind of does it all and I just uh well, I respect that a lot about him. So it's not like you guys are going to make a cameo in a Meet the Fockers movie or something? Oh, we're going to try for sure. We're, yeah. we're yeah. not very good actors. I should take some classes in that, too. I doubt that. I Well, I have to confess, where Star Talk is concerned, I'm more curious to hear about Weird Al. Oh, yeah. Boy, Dan, that was just the best. That was, John just reached out. We worked with him on on limited things, and, and you know we've just been huge fans since as long as I can remember, um, being mm -hmm. a fan of anything. And so he, once again, it's like, it's more, not just the fanboy and that he's an unbelievable musician and singer, but just the fact that, uh, trying to encompass everything that we like and everything that's important to us. And, uh, he is one of those connectors And this time of, you know, extreme divisiveness. We're always mm -hmm. looking for common ground and people that connect and everyone likes to laugh. And was he funny in person? Yeah, no, he's just really sweet. I mean, he's hilarious with anything he does just because he's Weird Al. And no matter what, him ordering coffee is hilarious. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, he's just a really great dude. And we've met a lot of cool people on, along the way and a lot of people that we respect, you know, immensely. And I've only been kind of starstruck and like fumbled my words and nervous a couple of times. And Weird Al was definitely one. Yeah, I hear you, man. The creator genius behind UHF. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> So to the topic at hand, you you dedicated your Grammy for Feel It Still to Native peoples. And before we talk about the connection between the song and your work with indigenous communities, I'd like to just talk about the song itself. I, like many other gazillions of people, love the song. And John, I wanted to know, the, would you mind telling me about the, the chorus lyrics and what they mean? What it means to me? Yeah, I yeah. mean, definitely. I, I guess when I when I'd sat down to work on the song, it 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 went through so many different versions along the way. And the the lyric kind of stuck with it the whole time. And it was this this idea that we are I mean, the rebel just for kicks is like we're, we're just nerdy kids who like playing music and we're out here and we're passionate about so many things, but we play in this world of you never grow up. I mean, that was that was kind of the the idea behind it. it was just trying to be punk in this mm. fantasy land that we live in. And what about the latter half of the chorus, John? It may be over now, but I can feel it still. Well, I mean, we've broken down this the song quite a bit. Uh, it's it. There are, are a lot of pieces to this. Um, I mean, as we were putting it together, 1966 is obviously connected to civil rights and just this rise in social consciousness mm -hmm. and and mainstream awareness mm -hmm. um i mean 
it, it was a really quick song to write. It's just everything that we kind of think about on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, more, more than anything, I was singing about my daughter and how do I raise a, raise a kid in this world, like kind of crazy world at the moment and still pursue these, these things that we believe in. And how do we, I mean, that it was the stepping stone for everything we do now, the stepping stone for the foundation. It was doing land acknowledgements for the first time in Australia and learning about Welcome to Country and seeing this whole, like, like they have a website. They have a place that you can go and you can actually connect and make a donation and Uncle Alan Madden will come out and introduce the set and 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 tell people about the land we're on and welcome us to his his land. Can you tell us more about who that is? Yeah, Uncle Alan Madden. Um, actually, Zach, do you want to do you take this part? Yeah, yeah. He he's a he's an Aboriginal elder in um, in Australia, and we went down there and we've you know John and I grew up. A quick backstory: We grew up in Alaska, so very close to the the Native Alaskan community. John was really into it. His parents were dog mushers and trained dogs. So like when I met John, he had over a hundred dogs, I think. And so in that community, you know, know, very tight knit with all the native Alaskans, you know, we grew up there and you're just very close and you know, you know, the stories, you know, the, the wisdoms and the beauty and the art and the problems as well. And as we traveled other places in the world, it was harder, it was harder to see, you know, we saw the names of rivers and the names of cities and it was harder to hear the voice of the people. And we, we had just always kind of been talking about that. And it's always been an important thing to us, but never knew how really to help. And so our photographer, who's Australian, he told us about the program, Welcome to Country, which like John said, it's really cool. You have a donation. It's simple manners. You just ask permission to come aboard. And it's a really cool shared learning experience between us and the crowd itself. Like before the show, we both get to just learn and share an experience, which is what music and live music especially is all about and so uncle alan madden was the uh was the first one we got to do and uh we were in melbourne he's an aboriginal elder it was profound we got to hang out with him for two or three hours before the show and just talking in depth and it was just like it really brought to light you know talking about the story of colonization on the other side of the world with this the same surgical precision cookie cut procedure by the same person, the same, you know, explorer. And we just could not believe it. That it was just the exact same mm-hmm. story that we heard in the native Alaskan community and how just on the other side of the planet, the, the same shit happens. And so, yeah, he was the first one that really like talked to us about it and inspired us and, and just let us know so many, so many truths and so many things that we were scared to ask. And I think that was one of the biggest things that we learned is that, you know, a lot of these problems are us by us wanting to be polite and not ask uncomfortable questions, whether it's making other people feel uncomfortable or yourselves, because, you know, you don't like to be ignorant and you like to pretend that you know things when you don't. And sometimes you just have to ask a question. And like what's an example of a, of a uncomfortable question to ask? Yeah, that's uh, I did want to add the uncomfortable questions. The uncomfortable questions are are things like what have I done to contribute to this and what have I done to perpetuate these, these wrongs. And really what you should be asking is what can I do to help and what can I do to change these things? I see it a lot at just at our shows, like at festivals and things when we're doing land acknowledgement, I see 
so much interest from other bands and other artists, but they're always a little standoffish at the same time because they don't know exactly how to carry themselves. And I think one of our friends in Seattle kind of put it best when when we sat down with uh, our buddy Brad. He he was saying, if I could give anybody some like insight into being native, it's that I watch Netflix. That's something I want somebody to know about me. I watch Netflix. It just we're all the same. Common ground. We're all yeah. It's common ground, and I think those are the uncomfortable questions that really shouldn't be uncomfortable questions. Yeah, and I I think uh, I know Desi can uh, once we start talking about her work, she can speak to what it is to be an ally. And Desi, can you give us? Can you tell us a little bit about your background, please? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm just a res girl. It's really cool to be here. I, I want to say Nia-ish, which is thank you in my Cheyenne language. I'm a citizen of Northern Cheyenne Nation and Chicana. Uh, I was born and raised in Lame Deer, Montana, which is a small community on the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation, which is about 100 miles from the nearest city. I'm a professor of sociology and American Indian studies at UCLA. But above all else, I'm a relative. And that's what grounds me in the work that I do, is that I'm a relative. And how can I act and be and live in relation in a good way? And so one of my research areas explores how data systems and statistics and Western ways of knowing how they contribute to the erasure of Indigenous peoples. And so that's part of my work. I run the Data Warriors Lab, which is an indigenous social science laboratory where we bring together students and tribal leaders and community members and researchers together to build data systems that support strong indigenous futures. And so that's my work. It's also my passion. And um, similar to, to artists who use, you know, songs to tell stories, I believe data can also tell stories. And can you speak to, in, in the broadest sense, could you please define for us what data science is, what sociology is, what demography is? Sure. So data science is this interdisciplinary field that extracts meaning from data and it combines different types of expertise. So it was explained to me when I was figuring out how to be an indigenous data scientist, it was explained to me that data science requires kind of three areas of skills. You need computer programming skills, you need hardware and IT infrastructure skills, and you need subject matter expertise, which typically includes some sort of statistics training or computational mathematics. And often those different skills are combined in kind of a team-like setting. And that's what I really love about data science is it's interdisciplinary, it's collaborative. We work in teams to use the data for good. And, you know, indigenous data science draws on those aspects of, of Western data science, but it's also infused with indigenous ways of knowing and doing and being and how we relate to our communities, the work that we're doing, how it advances the future of our nations and our communities. And so the definition of indigenous data is much broader than the Western understanding. It includes our songs and our stories, our oral histories. It includes data about our lands and our resources, our culture, how our people have remained despite all odds, why we are still here. That's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about indigenous data. 
Um, but demography is the study of populations. It's very statistical. We look at, you know, the size, the structure, the movement of populations across time and space. And our main tool is the census. It's mandated in the United States Constitution that a census be taken every 10 years. And the very first census was in 1790. And so the purpose of the census is to ensure that our nation, the United States, that it continues to serve the people of this country. But what needs to be made known is that the census does not serve all people equally. And, you know, there are populations historically who have been excluded, who are historically very hard to count and hard to reach. Those people include, of course, indigenous peoples, particularly those living on reservations or in rural villages, people who are experiencing homelessness, veterans, young children, undocumented migrants. You know, we know who these people are in terms of their broad categories, you know, but Ultimately, the only population excluded in the U.S. Constitution, in the language that mandates the census, are American Indians. And so that needs to be made known that literally the erasure of indigenous peoples is built into the founding document of this country, the United States Census. So that was to support the narrative that, oh, it's just vast wilderness for for the taking. Exactly. Oh, there's nobody in the West. You know, we're not going to count the people who are actually there. And so by not counting them, we can spread this narrative that there's all this land ripe for the taking, manifest destiny, move West, settle these territories, right? Well, guess what? There were decades of Indian wars, decades, because there were Indians there and there still are. And we fought like hell to keep our lands. And so, you know, the the decades of Indian wars tell a completely different story. And now, you know, it wasn't until until 1860 that Indians were, you know, started to be counted. And those were just civilized Indians, whatever that meant, Mm. whatever that meant, the good Indians. Uh, Another 30 years later in 1890, there were finally census enumerations of Indians kind of writ large. But even today, right, the the 2010 census, the the largest population who was undercounted were American Indians. Um, But, you know, what we're seeing is the need for indigenous peoples to control their data. So indigenous data sovereignty is the right of indigenous peoples and native nations to control the collection, the ownership, and the application of their data. And those data can be everything from, you know, spreadsheets of demographic information, which is the work that I do, but also our songs and our stories and our knowledge about the land and about the migration of animals and what we saw in California, right? The, the need to burn lands safely um, so that we don't have these devastating wildfires like we've had. Yeah. You know, controlled burning is a part of, in, of indigenous ancestral knowledge. And so indigenous data sovereignty is a, a rights-based tenet that is really seeking to ensure that indigenous peoples have control over that information and those data. This is something I'm hearing more and more about, about indigenous wisdom and Western science catching up to. And I, I want to ask Zach and John, in your interfacing with different indigenous communities around the world. Could you guys share anything that sticks out about indigenous wisdom or things you've learned? Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'm fascinated with your work. When we first signed up to, to do this, 
you know, I, I read up just briefly on, on some of the things that you've written and, uh, Desi and, um, unbelievable. I truly think that knowledge is power. And the thing about power is that people are greedy for it and it can be used either way. You know, power Mm -hmm. can be used for good and power can be used for bad. And there is when collecting all that data, what's so important about it is that, you know, I mean, that's, it's just, man, it's, it's the new gold rush, right? That's what like the information age is like the neo-colonials and they're mining for your information about people. And if you don't choose how it's used and how it's gathered, somebody else will. And that historically has not gone well. And so I just, uh, I, I'd never thought about this stuff until I read some of your work and man, fascinating stuff and really awesome things you do. Big fan. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is like that. We've, we've heard so many amazing things and just made so many friends just doing this for, you know, the last, you know, several years that we've been doing this. Uh, and you're right, like songs are our stories and stories are data. Totally. And it is like Brene Brown said, I think she said stories are just data with a soul, you know? And I think that the data collection, you know, the, the good thing about numbers and the more information you have, the more you can start to see the clearer picture and not just one side having it. Mm-hmm. You know, another reason why natives probably weren't counted is like resource allotment, right? Totally. Zach, can you tell us about the PTM Foundation? Yeah, yeah. So we um, basically, when we started doing all this work, we, uh, I mean, we're we're dipshits in a band, you know, Matt. You can be um, gentle with yourself. <laughs> just, yeah, we're highly unorganized, but uh, but we do care quite a bit. And we are all about, it's all about community resilience. It's all about looking at issues that face everybody, but through an indigenous lens. And we just want to share the things that we've learned and elevate indigenous voices and indigenous knowledge. And it's been really amazing. And our, our goals were specifically for fundraising and things and COVID has kind of affected that as well, but we've actually been fairly successful in, um, in setting things up, but it's, it's basically bridging a gap. Like you were talking about Desi, um, you know, with our materialistic world and fashion and, but bringing that bridging the gap between, indigenous peoples and just showing respect. And so it's been really cool. And a lot of it is just connection with just making a network of people. And if we hear about some issue on some part of the world and we're like, oh, dude, well, we were just talking to this guy who has a system that he's dealing with a similar problem and they have this thing that's kind of working for them. So let me connect you to a lot of it is just connection. And through that, we just get to make a lot of friends and learn a lot of things and help a lot of people. Mm. But it is, uh, like we really want to take a lot of the pretension out of advocacy mm-hmm. and, and just like they say, activism is the new brunch. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> it's like, it's like totally. And we want to like, we just want to let you know that you don't need to be smart. You don't need to have money. You can like, there's so many little ways that you can help. And also to focus on the fact that it is not just a charity. And when we, when we work with indigenous people, a lot of interviews that we do, they, start, you know, congratulating us on helping out. And it's like, and once again, it's a partnership. We are learning mm-hmm. so much more than, and, and we're, it's, it's equal. We're getting what we're giving and it's, um, so it's not just a charity or a white savior kind of thing. We're trying not to do that. We're, we're, we're learning and we just want to collaborate mm-hmm. and it's just given us a really 
it's just been building a network to kind of do it officially. And it's been really, mm. really fun. And we've got to help people that have really good ideas and really good systems, but they need help grant writing. You know, they don't know mm -hmm. anything about grant writing. I don't know anything about grant writing. So we are like, hey, we know these people that do. And let's put our minds together and figure figure something out. Mm. You know, the past and present, Western civilization working together. I mean, like John always talks about like rewilding and empowering native youth to be you know, future consultants for companies that will eventually have to focus their green campaigns. Otherwise, you know, this mm. world just isn't going to last. And that knowledge is like so powerful and it's been there forever. But that's seriously like future shit. It's like it's been there forever, but that needs to be the way moving forward. And y'all should be collecting the data. You choose what to share. You know, keep the power in your house, you know? Right. Because data, data are power. Data equal vis visibility. Mm -hmm. Data equal accountability. Accountability, yeah. Data, e data equal investment, mm -hmm. right? So if we can gather enough data to start shining lights on systems and people and structures and power, essentially, then we can start interrogating and getting at the how mm. so that we can then start to create solutions. Could you walk me through, tell me what are the brass tacks of actually training the data warriors? Like, could you give me an example of an instance where you go into a community and there's data that you're trying to extract, sure. you know, how, what's a typical day in the lab? How does that look? So, there's a whole kind of primer that has to be given, right, to, to train the people in the community. This is what survey research is. This is what makes a good question, right? Our data are only as good as the questions that we ask. We have to test these questions. We have to pilot these surveys. There are statistical methods that we have to use to ensure that, that this survey instrument is, is valid, mm. right, that it's reliable, that the data we are collecting can be used in a scientifically rigorous nature. And so we have to deliver this type of training to these survey researchers. You know, when you are approaching a potential respondent, what do you do? How do you convey the information in a way that is understandable, but that in a way that also ensures that these individuals are informed and can provide consent mm -hmm. so that we are doing this again to to the utmost scientific standards, but also that we're doing it in culturally responsible mm -hmm. and culturally appropriate mm -hmm. ways. And so there's so much work that has to go into that front end, right, of training before we can even get to the actual collection of data and then before we can get to the actual analyses of the data. So a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is partnering with communities to do the survey or data collection themselves. Okay. And then the next step is how do we then analyze it and how do we analyze it with community? And that's where we're hoping to kind of create this kind of data institute where we actually get folks to come, whether it's to UCLA or whether we're going into tribal colleges and actually delivering some sort of data science curriculum that's building the skill sets that we need for the actual analytical processes. Mm -hmm. If we're thinking about this entire kind of research process, right? From mm -hmm. inception, design, collection, you know, to the actual kind of cleaning of these data. What's cleaning data mean? 
Cleaning data right means getting rid of duplicate data, getting rid of data where there is no informed consent, where we, you know, getting rid of data that perhaps is incomplete. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in order to actually get to a place where you can even do analyses, there's so much that has to be done to ensure your data set is good, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. word, right? How do we know our data are good? And what does good mean? Good means something different to scientists than it means to indigenous communities. Mm. And how do we work to come to a consensus on what good is? What are the different viewpoints on what, how you define good? Or what are the, on the opposing poles of science and indigenous communities? Well, you know, science is all about samples Mm. and sample sizes, right? And ensuring that we have a large enough sample to make conclusions that will be valid, that will be reliable, that will have statistical significance. That's what science is about, whether you're talking about social science or environmental science or biological science, life sciences. It's all about figuring out how to ensure that the samples that we are collecting, the data that we are collecting can then be used to make powerful conclusions. Mm -hmm. Um, But indigenous ways of doing research emerge out of indigenous ways of thinking and indigenous ways of knowing. And for us, it's not so much about having statistical power as it is having community power, right? Community relevance. That can be done often with much smaller sample sizes than what science demands. So when we're doing indigenous research or or research with indigenous communities, one of the biggest obstacles that we face as any sort of scientist is is small sample sizes. How can we make these massive claims with only a hundred individuals or with only a handful of of specimens, right? So we're always having to kind of balance and justify how indigenous research is butting up against these Western scientific Mm -hmm. norms of what is good in research and science and balancing that with the fact that stories, even one story, one story can be so powerful and can have the, the impact, you know, of transforming a community, Mm -hmm. just one story. But if you were to tell that to a scientific audience, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be completely dismissed. Where's, where's the statistical power in one story? And when it comes down to it, I'm a relative before I'm a researcher, before I'm a scientist, and I will always stand behind one story mm-hmm. um, if the community tells me I need to before I will, you know, stand behind the, the scientifically rigorous demand for more. We always want more. That's this Western mentality, always wanting more, more land, more water, more money, more everything. The way that we do science in indigenous communities is not based on more. It's based on what is. Isn't there statistical power? And I mean, if it's just one story, but it's an entire community that stands behind it. I mean, there's the more data that a Western scientist might be looking for, right? Oftentimes what I I have to do is I have to weight the data. If I'm trying to demonstrate that this one story is so powerful 
that it can stand alone. You have to weight those data so that you actually are giving that one story more power in your analyses. So for example, the um, Cheyenne prophecy about not mining for oil on tribal lands, right? Is that an instance of a story that you would wait? Yeah. I mean, if, if we were doing research on that topic and trying to think about uh, some sort of an environmental, you know, natural resource project, and we're wanting to evaluate, you know, the, the kind of traditional ecological knowledge that we have, right, as Indigenous peoples, as Cheyenne people, mm-hmm. that would be a, a pivotal example of a, an oral history an oral story that has tremendous power in shaping policy and shaping decision-making and in shaping the way that our community, our nation has interacted with the environment since time immemorial. Right. So we would have to weight that story in a way that would do it justice. Right. And so then we have to start thinking about how do we design new methods, literally, like indigenous scientists are at the cutting edge of designing new methods for doing research, new statistical methods, new analytical methods, ways of doing Western research and Western science that are in alignment with indigenous ways of knowing and doing and being. Okay. And so we are, it's like, it's so exciting because we're having to create these new means of, of waiting, these new methods, right? Or these new methods of collecting data or storing data or um, attributing, you know, stories not to one author or two authors, but an entire nation. I mean, that's what's like amazing is when, we, when you see these kind of scientific publications, right, uh, that are publishing research results, research findings, some of these indigenous research publications in Western journals, right, Western science journals literally list mm. entire tribal nations yeah. as authors, because that's what we are doing. Cool. The authors of these cool. of, of these works aren't individuals. They're entire nations. Desi, so you have some context. How I know Zach and John, we did a, a, a tour together in the fall of 2008. In fact, I remember watching Obama win the election with you guys. I think after we played a show, yeah. in, it was either Buffalo or mm. Rochester. But um, yeah, Rochester, I think. Okay, so but I remember because this was the time they were running against McCain and Palin and you guys are from Wasilla. So my friend, Zach, you are no stranger to advocacy because Zach told me about how he petitioned then Wasilla City Council member Sarah Palin to let him build a skate park. And she <laughs> yep, shut it down. Yep, yep. She ended up being good on it, but it took a long time. I was uh, I argued with her every week for about two years, two and a half years. Uh, but we did finally get it. But yeah, that was just a uh, that was pretty insane. Yeah, she was our mayor at the time, and I was pretty punk rock. And um, yeah, I didn't realize. I just recently learned that uh, I thought this whole advocacy thing and uh, political agendas that we're that we've been working with. I thought I was very new to it because I've always kind of been, you know, um, an anarchist at heart, sort of. But then uh, I just kind of realized recently, I'm like, oh, I've I have done things, I guess. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> but I didn't realize it. And um, and yeah, yeah that, was, that was something I'm still very very proud of. And yeah, we um we went to the city and we finally talked her into matching a a donation from the city for a public skate park, and uh, we raised the money. 
And then she denied it. And so we just had to go back and argue and we took a pretty punk rock and uh, protest style <laughs> approach to the city. I just, when they weren't listening to us, I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to get all my skater friends that uh, have mohawks and missing <laughs> teeth and uh, just bring a bunch of people to, you know, once again, just turn up the volume. Yeah. I mean, that type of civil disobedience, right? That's how we get things done in the, in this country. And uh, and we see that type of movement building happening, you know, across populations and, and, and peoples that, you know, you wouldn't think would come together on lots of different things. You know, like right now in southeastern Montana, my reservation is next to the largest coal strip mine in this country. Um, and my reservation sits atop one of the largest deposits of coal, but we've never mined our coal. Um, we've we've remained in extreme poverty, you know, um, due to a lack of all sorts of, you know, socioeconomic uh, conditions. But the coal industry is drying up. And we are now seeing in our in our community, the need for coal miners and Indians and ranchers to come together and unite along the same lines of we need jobs, we need to make sure that the land and the water and the air get clean up because we all have to live here at some point, you know, this is long term. And so the the interesting uh, thing that we're seeing, I think, in this country is coalition building across groups of people who have uh, perhaps at one point been enemies, you know. Yeah, we, we got to realize that, you know, there's Western ways and there's indigenous ways. And but the way forward is together. Yeah. And, and I don't know how to do it. But we're just kind of figuring it out. I think we can all figure it out together. And uh, yeah, I've learned a lot just in this conversation. And I'm I'm jazzed, man. This is I really respect your work and all the things you're doing for like missing and murdered indigenous women and girls like that data. Like, oh, my God. And it is blown up. That data, that data is, it has, and you know, it's about time. It's about time that indigenous women and girls can thrive and have healthy, safe lives yeah. in our homelands. You know, that's a whole nother story. Yeah. I'm so happy you brought it up. You know, there's so much on it. And the numbers are really shocking. So two of the most common or most cited data points that describe this kind of violence against women in Indian country are the fact that Indigenous women are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than the national average. So that number came out of the National Institute of Justice. And we also know that 84% of Native women have experienced violence in their lifetimes, so some sort of violence. And one of the other data points that is often referenced, which is even what President Obama has said and, and other presidents and, and leaders, is that one in three American Indian and Alaska Native women will be raped in their lifetime. Mm. One in three. And isn't the leading cause of death among uh, Indigenous women under 20 um, murder. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And so we know that if we're looking at these numbers and if we disaggregate these data by age, we know that it's our young women who are suffering this, the disproportionate burden of this violence. And we see it all across Indian country. You know, uh, it's really hard to even think like one in three native women will be raped. We will, we are murdered at 10 times the rate of everybody else in this country, right? 84% of us will experience some sort of violence. These numbers are 
literally our realities, my reality, <laughs> um, the, the reality of my sisters and my mom and my aunties and my nieces. And, and so you lost your a niece, right? Yeah, I did. I lost, uh, I lost, uh, my niece two years ago now, almost we're going up on two years. There still has been no justice for Kaysera. Kaysera stops pretty places, there's still an open investigation, but there have been uh, no confirmed leads or arrests, and her cause of death is undetermined. And, you know, the family continues to fight for justice for Kaysera, just as families all across Indian country keep fighting for justice for their loved ones. And the sad thing is, is that there will be more. There will be more Indigenous women who die at the hands of violence because of these systemic injustices that continue to create unsafe environments for us to live. And so as you collect this data as, you know, being an advocate and scientist, uh, how will data sovereignty help make these people more safe? You know, data sovereignty emerges out of a rights-based framework. So indigenous data sovereignty is about the right to control data, the right of tribal nations to control data, to control access, to control the analyses, to control the reporting and the storage and the future use of data. There is no equity and there is no justice for indigenous peoples unless there is sovereignty. And that's what I tell people. We can be talking about data justice and data equity, health justice and health equity. We can talk, be talking about criminal justice. We can be talking about violence. We can be talking about housing. I mean, literally any domain you want to talk about, the buzzword now is equity, food equity, right? Equity in the criminal justice system, equity in housing, um, equity in health. None of that makes any difference unless sovereignty is at the center of it for indigenous peoples. We are sovereign people. We have governments. You know, we have tribal leaders who are elected, who hold the same degree of authority in our nations as the president of the United States. And we have lands and jurisdiction. We have our own laws, right? We have our own jails. So ultimately, sovereignty and authority and control over data is what is going to transform our experiences as indigenous peoples with these systems that have erased us perpetually. Um, we are so erased in all of these national data sets in national statistics, we continue to be erased and it's intentional. It really is. If we think about how, you know, the only population specifically excluded from the United States census in the U.S. Constitution are American Indians. We're the only people excluded. And we see that pervasively across all of these national data sets. But yeah, so, you know, it's an interesting time to, to be alive because we're having to make, coal, you know, build coalitions with people who, um, who's, views and whose lives have been in in stark contrast to ours you know um but 
we all need to figure out how to live together and, you know, for the long term. How do we how do we protect our world? How do we save our world? I mean, literally, um, I believe indigenous data can help us. I do too. Um, can really help us think about how do we get non-Indigenous people to care about our stories, to care about Indigenous permanence in this world, and to realize that Indigenous knowledge systems can help save all of us and can help to remind us how to live in healthy relationships um, with each other, but with everything that um, is non-human as well. And I, this is one thing that I've been meaning to ask you is, on, on that point, what, how can lay folk become more comfortable understanding and interpreting data? Because it's, I, I kind of see an alignment of values with your work and my objective starting this podcast, which is to boost support for evidence-based policy and, and government. You know, for my money, I feel like one of the quickest ways to get there is if people are more science literate, people are more respectful of expertise, and people are more discerning about interpreting and evaluating evidence. So as a, as a data scientist, how can people learn to become more savvy and interpret data on their own? Yeah, I mean, you know, because we live in this, you know, datafied world, there's so much happening out there. There are so many amazing apps and so many cool gadgets. And, you know, I was just, I want to mention because of what Zach had talked about, about the um, welcome to country and the, the their, you know, the, the amazing work that they do at their shows to do the land acknowledgements. Well, everybody can text this number, 907 312-5085. It's a, it's a number you can text. It's an SMS bot that was developed by um, this company called Code for Anchorage, actually, and it was funded by um, a Canadian nonprofit. But you can text your location to that number and it will send you back whose land you're on, what indigenous people's land. You can say, you know, Los Angeles, California, Chicago, Illinois, you know, um, Buffalo, New York, and it'll tell you whose land you're on, whose indigenous land you're on. And I think that's so cool. Like we have, so cool. we have this um, technology now, right. That is allowing us to, to be more educated consumers of data and information. Take the Apple watch, for example, right. I mean, the newest version of that, has an oxygen monitor, it has a heart monitor, you know, everything is being tracked, like our spending habits, our geolocation, and now our health status. And that Apple Watch does all of these things. And the interesting thing is that, you know, that one gadget is collecting data that can be used for good, and it can also be used for bad. Well, that Apple Watch, you know, is reminding us to get up and walk around or make sure you're getting your steps in and, you know, encouraging us to exercise more. But the bad thing, and this is what's so important about needing to be a critical consumer of data, is that those data can be also used potentially to screen for pre-existing conditions that could disqualify people from health care coverage if, let's say, the Affordable Care Act, right, is struck down, which is a real possibility right now with the Supreme Court. And so people just need to be more conscious of what they are consuming and what is being, you know, what is your input and what is your output. And there are apps now to do that. You can turn off your geolocation. There are ways that we can use technology to be more critical consumers. There are also lots of ways to control our level of, you know, information intake. You know, so many of us just suffer from information overload every day. Our kids, you know, my goodness, especially right now with uh, all the virtual learning. 
there's a lot that we can learn from slowing down, right? Being in stillness for a bit, unplugging, this kind of rewilding is, is kind of in line with that, right? People are trying to figure out what does simple living mean? And it's kind of this new buzzword and this new kind of uh, fad movement, right? Is like, how do we downsize? How do we unplug? How, do, you know, how is that part of self-care? Well, for so many indigenous peoples, that's our reality. We don't have internet service. We don't have cable TV. There is a, a limited, uh, you know, limited connectivity in many of our communities. And so that's, there's just a lot to learn, I think, from, from each other. And you brought up the rewilding in, in the context of Zach, when you were first telling us about that, you'd said John is often communicating that uh, or talking about it with, with young native peoples. And I, it reminded me of something that I came across in, in your book, Indigenous Data Sovereignty, uh, Desi, that uh, yeah. one thing that you're trying to address is these, this idea of data point stereotypes and that so often the statistics that we're familiar with have to do with alcoholism, suicide, diabetes, things like this. And so how as a demographer, do you work to move beyond that to measure and promote attributes that show where Native Americans thrive and and especially the young people. I mean, I know you had, you had mentioned the idea that that's the makes up the largest part of the demographic. Yeah. A critical part of the work that I do is to influence the better collection of data in these existing data systems. So the census, the American Community Survey, you know, the way that vital statistics are collected. Um, so we have to make those systems better for Indigenous people. So more relevant, more accurate. But where I think the real power is and the real excitement is and what get, literally wake, gets me up every morning is how do we build new data systems for indigenous peoples, you know, that are by us and for us and that harness our knowledge and our connections totally. and that are really, you know, targeting our futures. And so that looks like, you know, doing our own you know, censuses. So you have tribes now all across the United States who are saying, you know what, we are sick and tired of the United States census coming into our communities, um, collecting all of this information and then leaving and then undercounting us at the end of the day or missing a whole bunch of our people at the end of the day. And so these numbers are not accurate. And, you know, and so we're going to do our own census. And so you have tribes and communities who have done their own censuses. And it's interesting because the federal government is like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. The Indians are doing their own numbers now. They're counting their, they're counting their own people and they're wanting to use those numbers as the official numbers um, for all these federal purposes, right? I mean, billions of dollars gets appropriated based on the census. Um, and so there is an actual formal process to challenge the United States census numbers that are collected about tribes and tribes are challenging it. They're saying, hey, we've collected our, these data and we're going to challenge the numbers that you have. But it's interesting because the feds don't make it easy. It's a very complicated process that you have to go through. You have to demonstrate all these scientific uh, reliability and validity and all these different ways in which which numbers are scientifically determined, but tribes are doing it. And so I think that's super powerful is we're pushing back and it's happening. You know, we're also going out and we're reconnecting to our ancestral 
ways of knowing and doing um, and documenting that. So, so much of our data, uh, our data systems of, as Indigenous peoples um, have been disrupted intentionally as a result of colonization. For, you know, most of us, we were removed from our ancestral homelands, forced onto reservations. There's over 300 reservations in the United States, 574 tribes. A lot of our reservations aren't even on our ancestral homelands. And so we're having to reconnect to those ancestral homelands and those knowledge systems that are very land-based. And that's happening. And there's some amazing ways that, you know, people are documenting ways of, of being in relation to land and water and animals that are really influencing new ways of, of living in relation. You know, our young people are, are like, wow, you know, those used to be our ancestral hunting grounds. Like, wow, let's figure out how to, to reconnect to those places. You know, oh, we used to catch fish in those waters. Let's figure out how we can do that again. And so it's a really exciting time, I think, to be involved in Indigenous data and, and in this Indigenous data revolution, which I, I've coined. You know, we are in the middle of an Indigenous data revolution in this country, across the world. Indigenous peoples are doing data. They're reclaiming. They're rebuilding. And, um, and I think the Western world has a lot to learn from us. Yeah, certainly. Well, right on. This is this is so cool. I, I want to wrap up, but I first I want to ask if, if either of you want to add anything else that you want to make sure people are aware of. No, I mean, I just want to uh, completely officially agree with everything you just said. That was amazing. And, and yeah, I, and I really think this is a time to reevaluate yourself, your home, your community, your world. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just think like each and every person can do something. And, and yeah, exactly. The whole point of training people and stuff is to make an automated machine out of data gathering for humans to do it right and do it naturally. And I think that's, I think that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a cool, a cool conversation. Oh, thank you guys so much. Hey, you guys. Yep. Take care. Catch Portugal the Man on tour this spring with Alt J. And for more information, please visit their website, portugaltheman.com. Stay up to date with Desi and her Data Warriors Lab by visiting her website, drdrdesi.com. Sing for Science is co produced by Talkhouse and brought to you with support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram. Media by Ottavio Media and Bailey Constas, and press by TCB Public Relations. Special thanks to Rich Holtzman for his help with today's show. Please be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>